Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring Carl Jung and Karl Marx. My guest is James P. Driscoll, who was my roommate in 1969 when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. Jim was just finishing up his doctoral degree in Renaissance literature at the time. He is the author of Identity in Shakespearean Drama, The Unfolding God of Jung and Milton, Shakespeare and Jung, The God in Time, Shakespeare's Identities, Jung's Cartography of the Psyche, How AIDS Activists Challenged America and Saved the FDA from Itself, The Devil and Dr. Fauci, The Many Faces of Bureaucratic Evil, Carl versus Carl, most recently, Jung and Marx, Two Icons for Our Age. Jim lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hello, Jeffrey. It's good to be back. You've really done something that I think for you is breaking new ground to write a book about Karl Marx and Carl Jung. It's interesting that they both have almost the same first name. They, uh, it's pronounced the same. The spelling is slightly different. Yes. And the, these two Karls are, uh, as I say in the book, they're really hugely important, uh, iconic and archetypal figures in terms of representing archetypes that are active in, in our, uh, civilization now and, and really for the, for the last century or so and probably several decades on into the future. They're tremendously, uh, significant figures. Uh, Jung's significance is not as generally recognized, of course, as Carl's. I mean, Carl's significance just hits you in the face because uh, his followers have taken over political systems that uh, have rule uh, one to two billion people and have impact on the entire planet. Uh, but but Jung is probably, in my view, He's the best representative of the whole archetypal complex that is uh, a viable alternative to Marx in uh, in our time. Uh, and uh, I think guiding us, Jung it's, is crucial, re really, understanding Jung is crucial to guiding us out of the problems that we're stuck with, uh, with uh, a, a kind of cathexis on Marx and Marx ideas. And, uh, uh, you know, if you listen to uh, so-called conservative thinkers, in my view, they're, they're neglecting you and they're not offering... Uh, as strong an alternative as they could and should. Uh, 
in that they just want to go back to things that uh, we've discarded for good reasons. Uh, they, they want, you know, they want to go back to the the flood or uh, reenact uh, uh, the 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 strict rules of, of the caste system in India, so, so something like this. And Jung uh, really shows the way that we can go move ahead. But one of the important things that I guess I learned from uh, writing the book was to value Marx more than I did uh, previously. Uh, and uh, uh, I see him as uh, a destructive force, but also a vital positive force. And uh, there's the Jungian idea of the coincidentia oppositorum, the, the joining of opposites, which creates a kind of synthesis. And I eventually reached the conclusion that rather than seeking for the, the exclusion of and repudiation of Marx, we need a synthesis that includes what is valuable in Marx. Uh, and so that's one of the important points uh, that, that the book m makes. Uh, the book deals a lot with religion. And uh, the very last thing in the book, the epilogue, is, is just short. It's just a page. And uh, I've titled it Jesus Christ Activist. <laughs> and uh, you, of course, makes a great deal of, uh, uh, about uh, Christ as, as a symbol of, of the self, as the uh, individuation is symbolized by the crucifixion and Christ's life and so on. Uh, Christ as a symbol, as an archetype, is hugely important within Jung, and that differentiates him, of course, from Freud and most of the other mainline 20th century psychologists. Uh, but uh, it's also the case that Marx derives importantly from the same critic, now, uh, the same uh, uh, figure from, from, from Christ, in that Christ is the archetypal activist. He not only is the symbol of the self, but he is the archetypal activist. And uh, Marx, while not himself, the, he's the archetypal activist thinker, I suppose, of, of our time. Uh, not necessarily the best or the most important one in all history, but the most important, the most influential one that we have, uh, today. And so, uh, they really both derive from different aspects of, of this signally important, uh, fi figure that, 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 that was Christ or, or, or Jesus, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, in a way, if you create the coincidentia op oppositorum or the quest for building it and so on, in a way you might see it as a, an effort to uh, reconnect with the whole of Jesus or Christ uh, and not just with parts of it, but to bring the whole thing together. 
Okay, well, that was a very good introduction to your book. I think it would be very useful to begin with, to give our viewers a sense of where you are approaching this exploration of the two Carols. Uh, first of all, I know uh, that you would be considered possibly the foremost critic of uh, Renaissance literature from a Jungian perspective. So you're probably more in the Jungian camp than in the Marxist camp. Yes, I'm definitely more in the Jungian camp than in the Marxist camp, but I see Marx as uh, a lot stems from what may have been really the first serious uh, work that, that I did and, and published it was in my originally in my dissertation and then published separately in uh, a couple of different forms since then. And I started out working on uh, the idea of God in King Lear, uh, which is a, a signally important work because uh, uh, tragedy is the peculiar art form of the West and Western civilization. It's one of its distinctive features. Other civilizations do not have real tragedies. Of course, they have sad and disastrous stories, but uh, not tragedy. And uh, this is, by the more sophisticated critics' uh, uh, opinion, uh, the greatest of, of all the tragic tragedies and the most tragic uh, of them. Uh, and so I saw King Lear uh, in terms of Jung's answer to Job, in which he discusses the con, uh, the development of Yahweh in the Old Testament and, uh, the conflicts in the book of Job and how the, there's an attempt throughout history through the prophets and on into Jesus and so on. <clears throat> to deal with and resolve these problems, uh, which center on on the whole question of evil, why, why it's there. Jung and Marx, they kind of uh, represent uh, to an important degree, not not entirely, but uh, Jung talks about the two hostile brothers. I know, like Jordan Peterson loves to talk about the two hostile brothers, and this is a tremendously important Jungian archetype. Uh, of course, it goes back to the Bible, Abel and Cain, uh, and, and so on. But in a way, uh, Jung and Marx are iconic uh, exemplifications of the two hostile brothers. Uh, Marx being the Cain figure, Jung being the able figure. Uh, now, that's just part of Jung. And Jung is really bigger than that because Jung's goal is, he said, uh, uh, I don't want to be good or perfect. I want to be whole. And that's Jung's goal. It's individuated wholeness. Jung recognizes, of course, that's just a goal that we strive for. No one ever fully achieves it. But other, some people, uh, go much further in realizing it than, than, uh, the average people. And Jung, of course, 
was one of those people who went, I think, very far down uh, the path toward realizing it. I also think over in the arts, uh, Shakespeare was someone who went very far down that path, perhaps further down the path than any other great writer or, or artist. The importance of seeing Jung and Marx in terms of each other uh, is a key to understanding, I think, the not just the dynamics of our time, but also uh, the nature of the Godhead in our time. And uh, I, I think of the Godhead as, uh, I sort of coined the term, the, uh, uh, collective autonomous complexes, complex. And Jung talks about autonomous complexes. Uh, it's an important idea to him. He sees how they can be, uh, take over, uh, well, for example, his writings about the Nazis are really about how uh, the Wotan autonomous complex, autonomous complexes from Germany's dark past, identified with mythical figures, took over uh, 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 thinking and group behavior in Germany at that time. And uh, uh, to my knowledge, it doesn't use the word collective autonomous complexes and collective, that's kind of a word borrowed from Marx, but I, I like the term, and I think of uh, gods as collective autonomous complexes. Now, I'm not saying in that that, that means that there's no god of the universe, uh, uh, that that's just what gods are, but uh, as we know them, uh, as they shape civilization, I think that's primarily, psychologically speaking, what the gods are. And uh, I remember when I visited the island of Delos, uh, we had a guide, and she emphasized uh, there's this little barren nothing of an island off of Mykonos in, in the Greek Isles, but at the time of the ancient world, it was tremendously important because it was thought, and tens of thousands of people lived there, even though there's no water. Uh, it was thought to be the birthplace of Apollo. And I was struck by how important Apollo was then, that it was like a real entity to the people in the Hellenic world, just like Jesus or Satan might be, or Allah might be uh, real entities to, today. And that so, uh, sort of shaped my idea of uh, the collective autonomous complex, but collective autonomous complexes unfold. And uh, one of the ways I think... Uh, Jung was very interested in how this was going to unfold. Uh, even though he didn't use the term, he was interested in how the 
Christian and idea or Judeo-Christian idea of God is going, is unfolding in the world and in the West and where it is going. Uh, he saw us now as a very, is in a very dark place. And, uh, he thought that the way out of this dark place is to get more, is to get reconnected with, uh, the, the, the soul and, uh, the, the deeper elements of the psyche with the self, really, to realize the, the, the self. Uh, but, uh, there's, uh, just this view that, uh, things are very dark now. And, uh, a question I've had is, where is the collective autonomous complex that is, uh, behind Judeo-Christianity that he saw as a quaternary, you saw as a quaternary and so on? Well, where is that going? And, uh, it seems to me that, uh, to understand where it's going and to understand the complex itself, uh, we need, we, we not only need Jung, uh, we need to bring in what Marx represented in a constructive way into a kind of sy- synthesis. And a key to what was important to you is, you might say, consciousness. Uh, to one term on Marx, what I think he thought that he was seeking was uh, justice. Uh, and uh, that's the problem of justice is not something that you uh, and the unions deal want to deal with very directly. Uh, they do deal with the problem of evil, of course, and, and that's uh, uh, justice is an aspect of that. But uh, I think you can't deal with the problem of evil in the biggest sense, without considering the issue of justice. And Marx was kind of a um, um, monomaniacal. He uh, wanted, uh, or at least he thought he wanted justice, that he was seeking justice, that what was most important to him was not a, a good society, but a society that would be more just than uh, what he had. Now, uh, his critics say, with a lot of validity, that what he was really seeking was power. And, of course, you can't achieve justice uh, or a lot of other important things in life without power. I want to let our viewers know, Jim, that we've done many interviews on this topic in the past. In particular, we did an interview on the Godhead archetype. And I'm going to link to it here in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. If viewers want to see that interview, I'll link to several of the previous interviews with you. 
uh, it'll give our viewers a little more of a context if if they haven't watched them before. Of course, if you're watching this on an iPhone, I'm not sure about a tablet, uh, sometimes these uh, links to other videos embedded in the YouTube video don't show up. But for those of you watching on a computer, they certainly will show up. And I would highly encourage readers who or viewers who are with us this far to uh, look into the previous interviews that we've done together. Yes, I think that would be worthwhile. And, but I think I should try to get it a bit back more towards Marx. Let me interrupt again, because I, I want to give some viewers a, a, a bit of biographical history so they understand you. There was a time in your life uh, as a result of uh, social circumstances that where you felt uh, depressed, and you sought therapy. You, you you sought Jungian therapy, and you learned a great deal about Jung in, in that context, but you felt the therapy was ineffective because your basic issue was more of a sociological issue than a psychological one. Yes, that, 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 that's correct. I, I did feel that, I f felt that the understanding how my psyche worked and problems that were uh, largely psychological, uh, was, was very useful, but uh, that, that I had a justice, uh, problem too, which the Yugis, uh, didn't dealt with. And, uh, as a result of this, I think guided by the self, uh, I like to think that I'm guided by the self, uh, and it's always a big issue with, with people, whether they know it or not. Where, are they being guided? Uh, they're, are they being guided by the self or the ego? Or they can also be guided by their shadow. Uh, Hitler was entirely a figure of the shadow, uh, uh, ruled by the, the satanic uh, part of, of, of his psyche almost entirely. Uh, and then there's the anima or the, uh, or the animus. They can also rule you too. And there's the persona. Those are the primary figures. But if you're going to go towards individuation, you have to, the key is to get in touch with the self and let the self, uh, guide you. Uh, and so, uh, I like to think that I was being guided by by the self, uh, and sometimes the self will push you into ways you wonder why you are here and why you made this mistake. And it turns out not to be a mistake that the self is pushing you down the path that it wants to go, and it leads you actually to something more positive than what the ego was was seeking. Uh, but you you have to. It's very hard to learn to to listen to the self. It's much easier to listen to the shadow the persona or, or, or the anima than, than it is to, to the self. Uh, and that's Jungian training is very useful for that. But uh, so I became involved uh, as uh, an AIDS and, and, and gay activist, uh, principally a, an, an AIDS activist uh, during the AIDS ep epidemic. And uh, I, I wrote my book on, uh, uh, how AIDS activists challenged uh, America, which is the story of my, uh, work, 
uh, which I think of as uh, important. And uh, in fact, there was a, um, something that I think Bill Gates, uh, one of his foundation sponsors, and put out a list uh, 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 with, I think they called it Book Authority. They put out a list of the 20 greatest AIDS book of all time. And I was surprised to see they had rated my book, number three. Uh, and it's the story of the struggle of San Francisco activists uh, with the FDA to get uh, the drugs approved and in, uh, out into people uh, to save lives. Uh, and that was how I worked on the justice thing. And the insight I had much earlier, and it came from the union work, was I came to realize that evil is a challenge to create new good. And that's how you have to deal with evil. You have to find uh, the opportunity within it to create uh, some good that wasn't there before. Uh, now, this can be very difficult, and sometimes it can be impossible. You can just be defeated. You'll die. <laughs> uh, whatever. But uh, that, that's, that's the challenge of evil, uh, is uh, to create good, new good. And, and that differentiates it from uh, the view of evil where, where uh, the challenge is purity that uh, I can't be soiled by this. Uh, and this is, again, a Jungian point of view. He was willing to be soiled by the material and so on if it would further his quest for wholeness. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's necessary to do that. If you don't do that, uh, you'll be just stuck if you, in uh, following rules and, and thinking you're okay if if you just conform to the these rule this rule book you got your ten commandments or whatever it is and uh, uh, you just follow that and and that's all that you're that's all you need to do uh, to be shall we say in 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 the grace of God no that's not true uh, you need to creatively work to transform uh, the evils that in, you encounter in life into something that's good for you or somebody else. Well, I think both Jung and Marx might agree on that particular point, but it does seem to me that one of the important contrasts between Jung and Marx that you draw very clearly in, in your book is that Jung almost completely neglects the question of social justice, and Marx almost completely neglects the idea of individual wholeness and individual growth. Unfortunately, that's very accurate, Jeffrey. Uh, the criticisms are, 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 are spot on in, in in, in both cases. Uh, and so uh, that's why it's valuable to look at both of them, and that's why I've tried to do that in in the book. I've also, there in the book, I deal with important questions that they both have interesting insights on. For example, money. Uh, 
and material resources. They look at them quite differently, but uh, it's, uh, it's, everybody knows that this is a subject that Marx focuses, uh, focuses on. Uh, but Jung has very interesting things to say about money too, that our way of dealing with money is really a way of dealing with the soul. Uh, they have opposing views, uh, which in some ways are complementary, though, on the questions of, of science. Uh, Marx was basically a, a, a positivist uh, and skeptical and not interested in uh, the spiritual or the parapsychological. Jung was quite interested in the parapsychological and uh, 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 was certainly unwilling to to just deny it to be in uh, you know uh, in in line with uh, uh, the the consensus attitude that you often find in um, among uh, the sciences. Well, Jung, as I understand it, would have pictured reality as being primarily driven by subconscious forces, archetypal forces, as he described them. And Marx seemed to suggest that reality was driven by a, a dialectical process uh, based, I think, on the Hegelian dialectic. Yeah, historical determinism. That, that's true of, of, of Marx. And also that uh, the basis for understanding every, everything is the material forces uh, at play and uh, the economic forces, of course. Uh, and you saw the economy as a way of projecting soul. Uh, but but that's, that's not dismissing. Uh, he's far from being a... Uh, I guess the term would be an aesthetic. Like you remember that back in the early centuries of Christianity, you had these people that went off in the desert, went out in the desert and denied themselves everything and tried to be as dissociated as possible from material needs, wants, and so on. Uh, that's not you at all. No, Jung lived a life of luxury. He seemed to identify more with the middle and the upper classes uh, who were his patients and his colleagues, whereas Marx seemed to be a, a champion of the, the working class, those who were alienated and disaffected with the uh, larger, what you might call the elite of society. The oppressed, uh, the people who got the short end of, of the stick, Marx was interesting in that respect, though, because he was, uh, I mean, Marx was kind of, in some ways, uh, a normal human being, uh, in that uh, he had normal ambitions. He had several children, probably wasn't a very good father. Uh, he had to struggle with economic issues all of his life. And Jung, after he married Emma, who was heir to the largest watch company in, in Switzerland, had no economic problems whatsoever. Uh, 
uh, and uh, he adjusted very uh, thoroughly to, to that. So he was comfortable with patients who were from the Mellon and the Rockefeller families and, and th- things like this, whereas uh, uh, Marx was always trying to make ends meet, and at the same time, it was very important to Marx to maintain a middle-class uh, lifestyle. Uh, he wasn't uh, a bohemian uh, like, you, you know, the typical Marxist college students living with bricks and boards bookcases and a poster of Che, che Guevara on the wall. That's not Marx. He aspired to maintain the middle-class life that he grew up in. And interestingly enough, uh, Marx grew up in a wealthy Jewish family. And I believe it was either his father or his grandfather converted from uh, Judaism to Lutheranism because that was useful for pursuing a legal career. Uh, and uh, so he wanted to always hold on to that and uh, fussed about marriages and uh, the money involved in them. Whereas Jung grew up in... uh, It was a kind of rural near poverty, I I would say. He was... uh, uh, His father was a pastor of of a village church. Uh, And... Uh, uh, so uh, he was much poorer, uh, and yet it, it doesn't. It didn't seem to impact him that much. Uh, I don't think it caused him any suffering, uh, and it might have allowed him, growing up in that village or rural uh, circumstances, it allowed him to become more uh, closer to nature than Marx ever was. Marx always was an urban person and spent the last portion of his life in the British Library living in London. Uh, That's another interesting thing. You uh, traveled quite a lot for that time, and it wasn't so easy to travel then. They didn't have jet planes. Uh, But he was to Africa, to India, to New Mexico, where you live. He was there. Uh, and, uh, he was quite, quite interested in all of the, seeing firsthand all the different cultures that were, were, were out there. Whereas Marx remained with his books in the British Library. Well, well, both of them espoused allegiance to the scientific method. Both of them wanted to be considered primarily as scientific figures. But Marx was much more over in the positivistic area, although I, I, I was interested in that when reading the stuff. And I found that he was not especially intolerant. You know, that's a problem. Some of these people uh, in, over in the positive can be very intolerant, and, and they, they just want to shoot down parapsychological uh, uh, facts and uh, dismiss them and so on. You, of course, wanted to study. Uh, M- Marx was essentially a positive, but, but he wasn't uh, intolerant and, and do- dogmatic. And, of course, as you said, uh, he 
was uh, uh, Hegelian in important ways. So he thought that there were these overriding patterns, and he wasn't really an, an atheist. Uh, he's dismissed as an atheist, but it was more like, rather than saying that God didn't exist, uh, he thought that a personal God uh, didn't exist, and that God wasn't especially important. But I think that he probably realized that his own uh, historical determinism was a kind of God, was a version of God. And uh, so it's not like he felt or thought that it's just randomness or chaos out there with, 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 with no meaning. Uh, I think the problem with this uh, uh, philosophy was that his idea of meaning was overly focused on the question of justice, and it was very narrow, uh, whereas Jung's idea of me meaning was hugely expansive. Well, both Marx and Jung, I think, uh, it would be fair to say, rebelled against conventional religion. But their rebellion took them, I think, in somewhat different directions. Marx took really a great deal from, uh, there's uh, Raymond Aron in his book out of the 1950s where he uh, draws out the, uh, the, the parallels between uh, uh, it's really Catholicism uh, and Marx and how all sorts of ideas the, that the organization of the party in certain important respects follows that of the church and dogma in the party has parallels to, to the church and uh, what he calls me messianism uh, the idea of the Messiah, uh, uh, he shows how all sorts of key things in Marx have their roots uh, in the church. Now, the causation is probably more historical than uh, Marx was not an admirer of the church. He thought that the church was an instrument used for the by, by the, the nobility. In, in in the feudal times for the oppression of the, of the working class, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the I, I the ideas of, of doctrine and organization and so on uh, were kind of transmogrified from the church into uh, what became the party. In in other words, Marx. Marxism served uh, for many people as a substitute for religion, and I think people have accused Jung of doing something similar, of trying to substitute depth psychology for religion. I think that that's, uh, both statements are accurate, although I don't necessarily think that it's a, a criticism of, of, of you an effective criticism. Uh, if it were an effective criticism, it would mean that you need to go back to uh, 
and become more deeply committed to a, to a religion. I think Jung would have said that whatever your cultural background, you're Jewish, you're Buddhist, you're Muslim, you're Christian, uh, you need to understand, try to understand that. And that's, is going to be where your repertoire of myth and symbols comes from. So you need to deal with it. And, uh, just dismissing it and saying, oh, Christianity and Judaism are worthless. I'm going to be a Hindu. Uh, uh, he saw that as something that results in, in uh, a kind of psychological dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And uh, his, uh, his fa- friend, uh, the translator of the, of the I Ching, Richard Wilbur, I believe. Wilhelm, Richard Wilhelm. Oh, yeah, Richard Wilhelm. Uh, he saw that as an example of someone that had befallen, who had that problem and uh, uh, had kind of a split personality uh, come out of that. Uh, it, it wasn't like this was a severe criticism, but uh, I think that uh, uh, one of the things about you uh, which I would remark is that uh, I thought that he himself to an extent uh, was guilty of the same thing in that uh, he wanted to he downplayed perhaps too much and the motivation coming out of problems he had with his own father and with the Swiss church and so on when he was, you know, uh, a child. Uh, of course, he was heavily exposed to this, being the son of a pastor. He was, you know, marched off to church uh, on a regular basis. And I, I think that he had kind of an emotional reaction to Protestantism that caused him to uh, be overly favorable and hopeful about Catholicism and not to understand as well as he should have the criticisms uh, and the point of view of Protestantism and what was unique to Protestantism, what was valuable in Protestantism. I don't think he understood it as well as he should because of this uh, rejection. And uh, I think he also had a bit of an animus against Judaism as a result of, uh, I mean, he had two fathers, Sigmund Freud and uh, uh, his own natural father. And uh, he had reactions against both of them. Uh, and uh, they were very emotional, really. I mean, you, you know how he went through a, several years of almost a psychotic breakdown after the breakup with Freud, uh, where he broke the Red Book and and uh, had various uh, uh, strange uh, uh, is in communication with spirits and uh, went through a very uh, traumatic time, which interestingly enough, of course, paralleled the world and that the world was immersed in World War One. Uh, and 
uh, he was in Switzerland, but he's sitting in the very center of it, and it was like the world was collapsing him, uh, uh, around him. And he's extremely sensitive to that. Uh, I found that interesting too. How how extremely sensitive he was, almost like uh, uh, at levels uh, at so many different levels, not just the intellectual level. Uh, like you know, intellectually, we may be. Uh, disturbed about something we hear that's going on somewhere, the war in Ukraine or something, but uh, we don't have a kind of total involvement. He had a kind of total involvement in what was going on in Western civilization at that time. And uh, he was also, uh, Jung was just exceptionally sensitive to Western civilization, and even though he didn't specifically identify it, I think, he was exceptionally sensitive to the collective autonomous complex that uh, I see as associated with the Judeo-Christian Godhead and sort of acting as a personality evolving and developing and guiding uh, uh, the West along its path for 2,500 years. Uh, he is very sensitive, exceptionally sensitive to that. Well, it does strike me that Jung's appreciation of, of these archetypal realities isn't so different from Marx's appreciation of the Hegelian dialectic, which even though it's couched in the language of materialistic de- determinism of based on social and economic forces, you know, Hegel, Hegel if, if, if I understand him, and I'm certainly not a student of uh, the history of philosophy, but his idea of a dialectic seems very idealistic to me. Yeah, I, I think it's idealistic in the sense that it entails progress. Uh, I mean, that's what the dialectic creates, is progress. It solves problems, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've got an initial problem, it breaks up into the, into the, uh, the opposition, and then you get a synthesis, and then you keep moving on. You keep moving up uh, towards a kind of a creation at the end. Uh, although Marx didn't exactly go there, I mean, he's, uh, uh, but you create an ideal state at the end. You move towards constant improvement of, of things, and, uh, but the problem was the class of society never happens yeah. when Marxists uh, take, take over. And uh, he wasn't in a position to deal with that problem because uh, while Marx is one of the most handful, the most famous thinkers in, in the world today, he wasn't then. He wasn't particularly important uh, during his lifetime. And he died in eighteen in the eighteen eighties, uh, as I recall. Right, and his ideas began to take hold in in Germany and in Russia afterwards. Well, there are proponents of Marxism who say we haven't yet achieved a Marxist society. At the experiments in Russia and in China and North Korea and and elsewhere, never. Uh, really embodied uh, Marxism as Marx intended. I guess you could ask why not? Why why did they fail? 
not not just say, well, we're going to try again. For one thing, it's stupid to try again without without figuring out why 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 you failed the the previous time. Uh, what went wrong? What's the pattern? How do you avoid things that go wrong? Well, one of the things that went wrong, famous thing, is the cult of personality. You know, one person, Stalin, Chavez, uh, whatever, takes over everything and uh, uh, forms the society along the lines of his biases and uh, predilections. Uh, uh, they, they don't... Uh, they, they, I don't see them as dealing that with that in a constructive way because I guess I I look at it primarily like as their critics do that it's a quest for power. Now, it depends on what you're talking about, what age group you're talking about. If you're talking about uh, young people who think the world should be better and want to do something to make the world better, uh, uh, that's different from talking about people who are uh, already engaged in a, a political uh, course. Uh, and the engagement of the well, it's like famous saying, Lord Acton, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Well, uh, there's a, this very strong tendency for anyone who becomes engaged in the political sphere uh, uh, to to be corrupted by it. And one of the criticisms that I would have of Christianity, uh, particularly Catholicism, but really of all, not just Christianity, probably all organized religions, although I don't, not an expert on the history of uh, the, the, the others is that the way that politics seeps in and corrupts things. Like, for, for example, uh, when Constantine became a, a Christian, the Emperor Constantine in the uh, uh, fourth century, he didn't just become a nominal Christian or just start going to Mass and nothing else. Uh, he shaped and changed all sorts of things about Christianity in accordance with his own predilections. Uh, and uh, very few people understand that. Uh, for example, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Uh, one of the reasons that's not in the Bible, it's not in the Jewish tradition, it's not something that uh, Jesus or Paul taught. Uh, it wasn't even something that Christians discussed during the first two centuries in any of their, their, their significant writings. Uh, but it was gaining force in the third century, and Constantine was very much uh, committed to that. And... Uh, um, there's a whole group of, of things where, and uh, that Constantine did, and of course, throughout, as it follows throughout the rest of 
uh, the history of Christianity. The, the Reformation, for example, the, uh, Henry VIII, uh, determining the character of the Anglican Church. Uh, politics, I think politics always has a bad influence on religion. Uh, it always corrupts religion. And that's uh, 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 Raymond Aaron's book uh, is, is uh, delineates uh, how, how that happens. One of the key things about Marxism is that it's very well set up to serve bureaucracies. And Unionism it does not serve bureaucracies well. I, I would agree with you, but there is a sense in which uh, a cult of personality exists in, in the Jungian world. Yes, that's true. And uh, it, it goes on. Well, a cult of personality exists in the Freudian world, too, though. Yeah. Uh, and it's in the world of, uh, of, of Platonism. Uh, there's a, you know, every great thinker and leader has cult-like, tends to have cult-like followers, and it's a problem. You have to be wary of it, uh, it has to be dealt with, and if you're going to be a Yugin, uh, you have to avoid the pitfall of thinking everything that Yug says must be good and right, and you can't be wrong on anything. Uh, that, that's a big mistake. Uh, uh, but cult followers tend to uh, assume that. Mm -hmm. uh, or if they will at least not want to deal with the talker, they'll want to avoid these areas where, like justice, for example, where Jung doesn't do much. Uh, uh, where he's inadequate. Uh, I mean, you, you can't follow just one, one thinker if you're one, wanting to move along the path for, of wholeness, for intellectual wholeness, spiritual wholeness, and so on. And you don't get it all from just one thinker. Everyone has limitations because no one, and you would have said this too, no one achieves wholeness. They just strive for it, or we just strive for it. That's all. Well, James Driscoll, this has been an enlightening conversation. I know we're just scratching the surface of these two iconic figures, Marx and Jung. Thank you so much for being with me today. I enjoyed it, Jeffrey, and it's always a pleasure. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.